Hey everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. Excited to have another uh, exciting episode of Top Quartile. And today, um, Sean, just thrilled to have you on the show. For those who don't know, Sean is the CEO of Regent Bank. And so as we get started, you know, Sean, just tell us a little bit about your background and current role, how you got there and what you're doing today. You bet. Thank you, Dan. And I really am very excited to be here with you. So my background is I grew up in a very small town south of Tulsa called Beggs, Oklahoma. So we had about a thousand people. I had 42 in my graduating class. I grew up on a cow-calf farm, a ranch with my grandfather and father. I went to Oklahoma State to college and I was about to graduate and my dad informed me that I needed to get another job, that there wasn't enough uh, resources and money on the farm for me to come back there and do ranching. And so I, through a very fortuitous dinner, ended up getting into the banking business. And very briefly, what happened was I was in student leadership and our university president had invited me to attend this dinner with the Board of Regents. And so we were all sitting around a table. The university president, Jim Halligan, asked me what I was going to do when I graduated from college. I only had one semester to go. I had no idea. I was too embarrassed to say that I had no idea. So I started scrambling, trying to think of something real quick. And to my left, there was a guy that had a nameplate that said, Bruce Benbrook, Chairman, Stock Exchange Bank, Woodward, Oklahoma. And I thought, well, that sounds good. I'll just say that. And that's what I did. And so everybody around the table was (laughs) super surprised. I kind of bluffed my way through dinner. And as we were leaving, Dr. Halligan said, you know, Sean, I didn't realize you wanted to go into banking. I've got a good friend that owns a group of banks in Oklahoma City. Maybe I can help you get an internship. And I said, "Uh, I would love that. I was desperate. It could have been anybody. I I would have said I was interested (laughs) no matter what he, no matter what he said. And uh, that's how my banking career began. So I was about 34, president of a bank here in Tulsa, had the opportunity to buy Regent Bank. And we have now owned the bank for 14 years. It has been the blessing of my life. And that's really kind of my professional story. And then about three and a half years ago, the governor for the state of Oklahoma asked if I would serve as the Secretary of Commerce on his cabinet. So I spent about three years doing that. And that that was a wonderful experience as well. We agreed to a two-year term. He dragged his feet just a little bit, but about three years into it, I was able to return. And now I'm just back at the bank full time. Awesome. What a great story. Yeah. It's funny how some of those connections in school and in life lead to opportunities. You led a very fascinating life. I mean, what's fascinating fact that most people don't know about you? That's a really good question. I would probably say a couple of things. First and foremost, I was a twin whenever I was born. That's something that not very many people know. My brother, unfortunately, his name was Scott. He made it to about four months of age and he had a digestive issue and did not live. I was the smaller of the two. I was about two pounds whenever I was born and really had very little chance of living, but I did manage to live. He did not make it. And so my mom always says I got twice the energy and twice the personality. And so that that's one that I think very few people would know. 
The other one that is always surprising to people, you know, whether I was involved over at the state capitol or whether in just day-to-day business here at the bank, is just the fact that I grew up on a farm and still helped my father on the ranch, loved the ranch, really, really loved the genetics of kind of breeding cattle up to become more efficient. And uh, that always seems to really surprise people. That's really the real me. And everybody kind of sees the city slicker me and they always seem really shocked that I grew up on a farm. So that's probably my top two. Those those are great. So probably a good thing, OSU Cowboys, right? Yeah, exactly. And and that's really why I fell in love with the Cowboys. My father graduated from OSU. And so we were just always, if you grew up on a farm in Oklahoma, you were an Oklahoma State fan. And so that's how I ended up going there for sure. Awesome. Well, what's growth been like recently at Regent Bank? You know, it's really been pretty amazing. To put this into kind of perspective, when we purchased the bank in 2008, the bank had started in 1898. Okay, so it was 110 years old. We had the opportunity to buy the bank and it was very small. The bank had 43 employees, two locations, $72 million in total assets. Well, today, about 14 years later, we have 170 employees. We have seven locations. We're about a billion, a little over a billion one uh, in total assets. And we have been the fastest growing bank in the country in our size range uh, over the last five years. And even this year, with the interest rates going up and the inflation issues and you know some of the challenges that we are seeing we're up about 12 percent uh, and we're only halfway through the year so we are continuing to see tremendous growth it honestly is not real logical and you know normally when interest rates increase economic growth slows down and so you just don't have the opportunities to make loans primarily that you would have otherwise but we have such a great team we have a good reputation we work work hard. We try to provide really good service. And I think that is driving just this, it's almost like the flywheel, you know, in good to great. It's kind of gotten going and it almost just kind of grows 20 to 25% every year in an industry that grows three to four. So honestly, it's been pretty remarkable this year. So how do you describe, you know, your leadership approach and strategy that sort of led to this flywheel effect? I think there is a culture that we have tried to build both inside and outside of the bank. I think inside the bank, I've learned that I just need to hire the best people and let them do their job and create an atmosphere that is not political, that is very open and honest, where we make decisions as a team. It's a very, very refreshing culture. Every time somebody comes here, every time, I mean, we hire 20 to 30 people a year. And every single human that walks in the door always starts out with, uh, this is too good to be true. It can't, it can't be true. This has got to be smoke and mirrors and I'm going to find out that this isn't as good as I think it is. And it really is just how we do business. We don't always agree, but we work things out very, very openly and honestly. And it, it is really remarkable. And then outside of the organization, we have always practiced a give first mentality. So what we think about, we're primarily a business bank. And so what we spend a lot of time thinking about, and I spend most of my time thinking about is 
What does a business owner need? What can we provide to a business owner, whether they're our client or not? How can we help them? And so we have a variety of programs and free informational sessions and just all kinds of, we bring management operating systems and that type of thing to our clients, as well as frankly, to the broader community. Uh, I just did a radio ad this morning where I was explaining to businesses throughout Tulsa, all the things that we can do for them and they don't even have to bank with us. And so our belief is that you just kind of try to do the right things, try to help people be successful and all of that ends up kind of coming back around. And so I think those two things have really helped us immensely. It seems related, that culture of support and giving first. Yes, that's an excellent point. It's kind of be generous both internally and externally. And I think the results have been really, really amazing. That's kind of the foundation. Has there been any changes, tweaks, maybe tactics, if the strategy stayed the same? What's What has changed over the years as you've approached growth? One thing that has changed is we have honestly tried to moderate our growth a little bit. As you get larger, the numbers get so big, the, the capital requirements get so big. And as we've kind of looked at it, we serve the shareholders of Regent Bank. I began to analyze the numbers and our CFO did as well. We kind of feel like a 15% growth rate and a 15% return on equity is our nirvana. If we could achieve those two things, well, we've had many years where we've grown in the low to mid thirties. And so one thing we've had to do is learn to frankly moderate just a little bit. But as far as growth strategies have gone, I believe, and we believe that having a niche is really the new local. So back in the good old days of banking, you banked with your local bank, whoever was closest to you. And each community had a community bank or more than one. And so if you could amass a a significant market share, then your franchise had significant value. Well, with technology, as we all know, that has changed everything. And so now as a, and I'm just going to focus on a, a business owner because that's primarily what we cater to. As a business owner, I can really bank anywhere. I mean, there is really not a geographic issue whatsoever. There's a little trouble. And if I want to, if I want to deposit a bunch of cash or deal with cash, I probably need a local bank. But even in that scenario, you can use a local bank and then sweep the money out to your preferred financial institution. So what we have done is we have tried to become very proficient in a few key niches. And those include nonprofit banking. We really excel in taking care of nonprofits. Hispanic banking. We have a very large Hispanic division. Healthcare banking. We, as I mentioned before we got on the call, we're just about half a mile from the largest healthcare system in Oklahoma. And so we bank a lot of the doctors and specialists there. That's a big one. Agricultural banking. Uh, Our initial location is rural. Uh, It's in a small town called uh, Nowata, just north of Tulsa. We do a lot there. And then we, as I mentioned, we just really cater around a family owned business. What are the things when you're passing it down from generations or how do you bring a family together and create a culture where they can all get along? We spend a lot of resources bringing those people in to help them. So those niches really seem to work well for us because they all have their own specific market 
marketing plan. They all have their own staff that specializes in that area. And so each of them grow. We're in good markets. Our markets tend to grow. And so at the end of the day, you go from tiny to pretty good size organization. And there's kind of community effects within those niches, right? There is. Yes, for sure. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a, as you say that, in some ways, I am more connected with CMOs, for example. I was a bank CMO for close to 20 years, and I keep in touch with gals and guys like me all over the country. And so your comment resonates very much. As you know, with your background, a client really wants to deal with any provider. It doesn't just have to be a bank, but in my world, it happens to be a bank that understands them. You don't want to. Ha- you don't ha- want to have to explain your business and your business model and your business model. And they're looking at you like a deer in headlights. And that's not what you want. When they can feel confident, whether it's the language barrier of the Hispanic or, you know, banking is just very, very different for healthcare providers or agricultural professionals. Those are great advantages for us. So how would your most loyal customers describe their experience with Regent Bank? One of the things that we say uh, makes us unique, okay, we utilize a management operating system called traction. And in traction, you are encouraged to come up with at least three ways that you're different. And our three ways are, number one, we have closer relationships with our clients. You know banking, so you know that in many instances in banking, the ownership or the executives don't really want you to get that close to your clients because how can you be objective? Or if a loan goes bad, how can you go in and do what you got to do to get your collateral back if you're best friends with that client? And I completely reject that. I mean, I I just think uh, we feel just exactly the opposite. Our belief is that the closer closer we are with the client on a personal level, if they begin to struggle, and I've seen this over and over and over, when they begin to struggle, we work through it together. They trust me to know that it is not my desire to shut their business down or pick up their car or foreclose on their house. I don't want to do that. So they're telling me earlier and we're working through the issues. So we have very, very close relationships. And that looks like all kinds of things. We go to uh, ball games, play golf, go to performances together. I mentioned that we are a give first organization. So we have a variety of programs in the community where we are constantly bringing and great speakers or consultants or thought leaders to try to help them come up with the next great idea for their business. And so all of that kind of coalesces to make this feel like one big family. On a Friday night, we have Tulsa Tough here in Tulsa, a huge cycle racing event. And so what's going to happen is in the middle of the area where they're racing, we're going to have a huge tent and we're probably going to have four or 500 clients that are going to come to our tent. What happens is everybody there ends up knowing everybody. It ends up feeling like this huge family reunion as opposed to nobody clicks off into separate deals. It's just, it's just very, very unusual. We still have to be competitive on price. We still have to do a good job on service. We still have to do all of those things, but we tend to get the benefit of the doubt because we are all so close on a personal level. Cool. That's a great distinctive. In that kind of personal context and with a big value on personal relationships, how do you use data and analytics and the mind? part of the business on your strategy. Yeah. 
As you know, data in an industry like ours is is so critical on a number of fronts. So number one, clearly analyzing the client to make sure that they're sound and have the ability to pay back your loan. That's all data-driven. To make sure that your clients are profitable is very data-driven for us. And so we utilize our core processor to make sure that, you know, we love our clients, but we are not a nonprofit organization. And so we have to provide a return here. And so how we price things, how we structure our accounts, all those things are very data-driven. We use a CRM system to look at activity by our clients and help us to serve them better. We use data to determine where we're going to expand to. One of the mistakes that I made early was we were very, very leader driven. If I met a superstar that, or at least someone I thought was a superstar that wanted to join our organization, we would kind of blindly go where they are. And we've learned that number one, I'm not always right on who is and isn't a superstar. And number two, even if they are a superstar, if they're in a bad or shrinking market or a market that is oversaturated, it's hard to do well in that market. So we use a lot of data there as well. So it's interesting, even though we are highly, highly personalized, we are also highly data-driven and technological to try to make sure that we are optimizing the profitability of our clients as well as our efficiency as an organization. Well said. So if you kind of boil up and get pressed for what are your top three lessons learned around leadership from all the things you've talked about, what would those be? You know, no question. The first one would be hire the best and let them do their job. We have a leadership academy here and we've taken hundreds of leaders through it. And I've asked the question, does anybody in here like to be micromanaged? Anybody. And in all these hundreds of leaders and every leader I've ever known in my life, the answer clearly has always been no. But for some reason, as leaders, we tend to do that. And so I do not. I am probably the other end of the spectrum. And I just tend to, we just hired a very, very important role, a new chief credit officer. And he has been a little bit surprised in the autonomy that he has in his job. And everybody's told him that's just the way we function. I mean, there are certain things where we need to coordinate because what you're doing is impacting other executives areas. But for the most part, I just need you to run your area as if you're the CEO and I need you to make it the best that it can possibly be. So that would be number one, hire the best and get out of the way. Number two would be to listen well and care about those people on a personal level. We have recently started a practice called relational leadership. And I learned this from a home builder in Lubbock, Texas, and it is transformational. And in short, what we do is all of our managers are required to meet with their direct reports at least 30 minutes a week. Now, the company in Lubbock does an hour, but at this point in time, we're just doing 30 minutes a week. And as a manager, we cannot talk about work. We spend that 30 minutes talking about whatever that employee wants to talk about because we know know right now that 65 to 75% of our employees don't have anybody to talk to. 
they just feel like, you know, about 40% of them are dealing with some type of mental issue today. And so people need somebody to care about them. And we believe that that can occur at work. We just believe we still give feedback. We still manage them. We still hold them accountable. We still do all that. But during those relational leadership meetings, if you're my employee, Dan, you run the meeting, you come in and you talk about all we talk about is how you are, how you feel, how I can support you as a person, how I care about you as a person. And so that has just absolutely been a game changer. There's kind of an aura of love within our organization that you just don't see very often. And then probably the final thing that I have learned as far as leadership goes is that we make better decisions as a team. So we have executive team meetings every other week. They last for 90 minutes. It's kind of part of the Traction EOS program. But what I've learned to do, get used to somebody would come to me And they would say, Sean, I got to have some help. I'm dying over here in such and such area. And and I really, really need to hire somebody. And so I am a bleeding heart. I want them to be happy. So I would always say, sure, it's not that expensive of a position. If you tell me you need somebody, I believe you go ahead and make the hire. Well, then the other four executives are in my office going, well, if they get a person, then we need a person. I needed somebody much worse than they did. And so what I learned over time is that making decisions in a vacuum is not good, particularly for me. Discernment, I don't think, is one of my top giftings. And so what we do now is anytime we make a major decision, add a new employee that's not budgeted, promote somebody, move into a new geographic location, add a new product, just whatever the case may be, anything that is a significant decision, we make the decision as a group. And when you come in new to our organization, it is a little shocking because we're debating. It looks like we don't like each other, but we really like each other. We are just debating to try to do the best uh, thing for the organization and we make better decisions 100%. So I think that's the third one. So hire the best and get out of the way, listen well and care about your people on a personal level and make decisions as a team would be my top three. Those are great top three. How does it relate to hey, run your own function and we're going to make major decisions as a team. It's the difference between operations and strategy. Okay, so on a day-to-day basis, if we make hundreds of decisions, maybe thousands as a leader, those are yours to make. Those are operating your area those are yours to make. And and truly, we're pretty specific about what needs to come to the executive team. I mentioned a number of them earlier, but, you know, things that are just outside of the ordinary. So we're a stickler for staying on plan and staying on budget. Pretty much anything you're going to do that gets outside of budget, you need to come in and justify it, particularly adding people, adding equipment, adding big things that are expensive. New products, new technology comes there. All the things that would impact people outside of your area. We want to talk about those together. And it really becomes very, very clear very quickly. I had a market president who really struggled with, I'm not going to tell you how to do your marketing. I'm not going to tell you who to hire. I'm not going to tell you how to 
structure, even how to price. I mean, all of those things are within your market. But if you want to do another location, if you want to add a body that wasn't budgeted, if you want to do something that's outside of our business plan, then let's all talk about it. It actually is remarkably clear once you do it just a little bit. You've talked about how you run the business. If you could go back to that younger version of yourself before that dinner and give yourself some advice on how to plan your career, for instance, what advice would you give yourself? I have been extremely blessed. I mean, I was a bank executive when I was 24, bought a bank when I was 34, went across state lines when I was 44. I mean, got into state government. I mean, just, I couldn't have imagined this life. But if I could go back, honestly, some things that I would do a little bit differently. One, I would keep first things first. I had a level of urgency within my career that was just unnecessary and frankly, unhealthy. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I worked too many hours. I got too involved in the community. I was trying to make a name for myself. It honestly almost cost me my marriage very early. And thank goodness my wife is a patient and I've learned. But that would be one is remember what is really important and remember that life is a marathon. Everything doesn't have to happen within the first three to five years that you're out of college. Just be patient and keep first things first. The second one would be just to enjoy the journey. That is one of our core values. And one of the reasons for that is we set big goals and we work to accomplish those goals. And my experience has been that often when you hit those goals, like when we hit the billion dollar mark as an organization, it was a big bit of a letdown. I mean, truly, it was just another number. I mean, I my job didn't change. My, you know, no uh, shooting stars went across the sky. And it just wasn't that big of a deal. And so when you're constantly all wrapped up in achieving some future goal that may or may not get here, life passes you by. So I have tried to enjoy every moment, every day, every stage that we are at. They all have things that are fun. They all have things that are real challenging but we want to really, really enjoy the journey. And then the other one is that every human is valuable. I think one of the best things we have done here is taking hierarchy away. There is not, I'm more important than the marketing director is more important than the teller. We don't have any of that. What we have is that we all have the same importance and we just have a different role. And if we ever, ever, ever see an employee talk down to any other employee in any way, that is a violation of another core value of ours and you get one warning and then you get alternate employment. And so what I have realized, I have learned more in my life from people that we would not consider super successful because they don't have a lot of money or some big title or whatever. There was a gentleman named Gene Grayson who helped us on our family farm. He was a meter reader for a local utility company. He would take vegetables from his garden all over the country. And I am telling you, when Gene Grayson passed away, you could not get in the church. There were as many people outside as there were inside. And so what I have learned is that a lot of things that we tend to value as a society are wrong. And he made a greater impact than any uber wealthy person that I have ever known. Just knowing that every human is valuable and important and worthy of our time and precious to God. And so they are precious to me as well. If I could go back or 
early on, I mentioned that one because early on, uh, like many of us, I was targeting the top brass, you know, and I wanted to be their buddy and blah, blah, blah. You know, I thought it would get me to the top faster and all that jazz. And that's all baloney. That's not real. That doesn't work. And it doesn't create the life that I long to have. Very well said. Sean, so great to have you on the show. It's hard to believe our time has sped by. Thank you. Really fun, Dan. I really appreciate it. And anytime you guys are desperate for a guest, you know how to reach me. I'm always available. This is fun. I, I enjoy. It's a good break in the middle of the day too. I spend some time with you. Awesome. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.